When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so welcome to episode 33 of the Brighton Rock podcast, a Brighton and of Albion podcast in which me, Russell Guyver, and my cohort, Peter Marsh. Hello, Peter. Hi, Russ. We'll be chatting to you again in aim drivel on some subject or other, but we do have the bonus of a special guest with us this week, Mr. Spencer Vignes, who is a, a writer, a freelance writer, sports writer, and author who's uh, written books on the Albion, amongst other things. Um, and welcome to the show, Spencer. How are you, sir? I'm doing mighty fine, thank you very much, in these uh, strange times. Yes, yes, it's, it's all good, as, as good as it can be, without football and without this and that, and yeah, odd, but there you go. It's fine, thank you. Good, good, glad to hear it. We had you on very recently, um, keen-eared viewers, uh, sorry, listeners even. <laughs> with, uh, yes, one of the keen-eared viewers. Anyway, but, um, would, would know that you've uh, been on recently for our Michael Robinson tribute edition where yeah. you had your words to say about the sad passing of um, one of Albion's legends of the early 80s. So thanks for coming on for that. Um, yeah, a bit of a shame that, wasn't it? A real, real, I mean, in terms of the timing, obviously, you know, he's still at a young age uh, in the grand scheme of things. So a uh, real gutter, really, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. I would recommend anyone that hasn't heard the episode, obviously, track back. It's episode 31, I believe. Um, so have a listen back if you haven't already. Um, but we're going to speak to you today, Spencer, in your own right, talking about the whole works, your Albion supporting um, backstory, uh, your career in and outside of football, and um, my career oh, in, the lo- in the loosest sense of the word. Yeah, with with uh, yeah. yeah, my career. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, that won't talk- last long then. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, talk about the books. Um, in later parts, we will then come on to topical debates, this week's news, and we're going to subject you to our BRP quiz later on as well. Yeah, so I've just heard. So I've just heard, but I'm all, yeah. I'm up for it. I'll, I'll fail miserably, but yes, I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah, no, no just to bear in mind, I, I didn't give any forewarning. I've just dropped that bombshell on you, haven't I, as we started? Oh, yeah, well and truly, he has actually. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, there, we go. there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, your Albion story then. I mean, first of all, just to paint the picture, when and where were you brought up? What sort of, what sort of area? What was the time? Ooh. What was going on when you were right. okay. going into the I, um, Well, football didn't really exist to me until about 1978. And uh, when was it? July 1978. My mum and dad and me, we moved down to um, Horsham. So, you know. For, for anyone who doesn't know, 20 miles north of Brighton, little little village just outside Horsham called Warnham. And um, everybody else pretty much in uh, in my primary school supported Brighton at that time. Uh, I didn't have a football team. I couldn't kick a football. I, you know, I couldn't spell football even. I didn't, I, I didn't know anything about it really. But I, you, know, you want to make friends. You want to, you know kind of get out there, do things, whatever. So I quickly realised that I ought to kind of fall in and, and start kicking the football around and learn something about this uh, this place or club or whatever it was called uh, Brighton. This Brighton and Hove Albion entity, whatever it was. 
So, um, and it was a good time, fantastic time to fall on my feet when it came to football, because uh, little did I know at the time, but the club had just missed promotion to the top flight, then by the skin of their teeth, by goal difference. But that the uh, the team were pretty much regrouping and we're going to have another go and we're going to go for promotion again, which was ultimately successful. That was the 78-79 season where we uh, we um, uh, got promoted. One at Newcastle in May 1979, uh, 3-1, uh, and went up to the top flight. Um, so I think that first season of supporting Brighton just really, really kind of skewed my expectations of what life was going to be like following them forever. Because you think, oh, it's always going to be like this. We're always going to win at home. We're pretty much usually going to win away. There's going to be regular promotions. We're going to win the Football League next year. After that, it's going to be the European Cup. Then it'll be the Universal Cup or whatever. We're just going to conquer the world. And... Um, uh, you know, it was great for the for the while that it lasted, basically. I think until Arsenal came down in August 1980 and beat us 4-0. I think, as Alan Mullery said, you know, our manager at the time, he said, he said it was like uh, watching one of those westerns where the gunslinger gets his gun out and just goes bang, 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 and <laughs> shoots everybody dead. And that's what Arsenal did to us that day. And I remember me and my mates pretty much looking at each other going, you know, you know, this is the way it's going to be. But uh, yeah, so it's great times, really. Um, so we were up in the top flight and losing more than we won, but we were there. Pretty much like today. In many ways, it's gone full circle. We're, 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 at, we're on the summit. We're looking a bit precarious. We're still there. Um, yeah, life's gone full circle. But of course, in between, we went up. We went all the way back down. We came all the way back up again. It's never been dull. I think there was only yeah. probably in all of that, there's been about three or four seasons where nothing has happened. But most years, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here, probably most Albion fans, you know, about my age will know that, you know, you're either in a relegation battle or you're pushing for promotion. Uh, you're very rarely cut adrift in the middle of the league table, you know, with nothing to play for. Uh, but that's the way I like it. You know, mm. never been dull. So I think the number of days, especially with Dean, the number of the games that were irrelevant for us was probably about a handful over the the twelve seasons or something. Yeah, there like, were one. Of, yeah, there were one or two years, yeah. weren't there, where it was a little bit. But, kind of yeah, thing. even then it was like once we possibly had a chance of relegation or promotion up to the last couple of games or something. And yeah, I think I, I sadly worked it out one time that there was basically I think one season in all of this time where we weren't going to go up and we weren't going to do it, go down, and that was nineteen eighty three, nineteen eighty four. Um, the season after the cup final, where we were never really in any danger of going down. We were never going to trouble the top clubs or whatever. So we were we were just rebuilding under Chris Catlin. Yeah. Uh, I've got very fond memories of that season, funnily enough, because it, it wasn't, it, you know, it, it, it didn't mess with my heart rate too much. It was, <laughs> uh, it was pretty normal. So, so yeah, I mean, most of, uh, I mean, that was, that was the time I went the most was kind of late 70s uh, throughout yeah. the 80s. Um, and I moved from Sussex in 1988, went away and went to Polytechnic in London, carried on going for the few years after that. But since then, um, I always wanted to be a journalist and my, my kind of journalism uh, career, for want of a better word, as you mentioned earlier, Russ, um, has taken me kind of all around the world. I've done you know news reporting, entertainment journalism before kind of coming back and doing more 
support and things. And in that time, I've ended up all over the place from, uh, well, California and stuff and Indonesia and all, all around the place. Uh, that's why that's why I missed Hereford in 1997. I was in Indonesia. So uh, I have a ticket that a friend got me for the game, which uh, is still unused to this day because I couldn't get back. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so I, I don't go so much these days. I probably only get to a handful of games every season these mm -hmm. days. How were you able to find out the Hereford score from Indonesia? Well, that was that was I was in a I was in a hotel in Bandung, in um, in Java, and uh, these were back in the days of faxes. Faxes were like the latest kind of technological, you know, advancement. And it was my mother, bless her. Uh, I didn't trust anybody else to muck me around or or get it right or whatever. So I I said to my mum, right, you um, can you fax me the score? Uh, <laughs> On the final whistle to this number, I managed to get her the hotel number for this hotel in Bandung, and I I, uh, I went out and we had to meal with my my uh, then girlfriend at the time, um, and um, couldn't concentrate. Oh, it was a nightmare, you know, your mind's on other mm. things. Uh, we got back to the hotel, got back to the room, and about five minutes after getting back to the room, there was a knock on the door, and there was a little waiter standing there with a silver plate, and on this silver plate was a brown envelope and i knew that in that brown envelope was going to be you know our mm. fate basically um and i mean you know it, it put opening my my o levels gcses and whatever completely in the shade really i mean you know, this was like this was another level and i remember taking it off this plate saying thank you to the fella shutting the door opening it and it said hereford one brighton one because uh, my mother had left the second E off Hereford, <laughs> bless her. And uh, underneath, Reinault, own goal, you know, or whatever, on the left-hand side. Uh, no, not Reinault, sorry, um, Reinault, ours, Kerry yeah, yeah. um, Mayo, Mayo. on the, yeah. the left-hand side. And um, I uh, distinctly remember what happened next. I uh, threw that in the air, charged through the hotel, jumped in the swimming pool fully clothed <laughs> and um yeah i don't remember much of the rest of the night. i've never heard of a result being transmitted by fax before that is that's amazing fact. and and you know what i i still have i've got you know i i'm a bit of a hoarder i mean i i say it's because i'm a journalist and i need all of this stuff for research purposes and whatever but i am a bit of a hoarder anyway i keep it and I've still got, you know, I keep lots of, you know, there's Brighton programs, stuff, research things and, and, and bits and pieces, knickknacks and things. But I still, to this day, I have that fax uh, um, folded back up and put inside the, um, the envelope, which is put in another envelope because, you know, what fax paper is like, it kind of, you know, it, it, it biodegrades or whatever and fades and things like that. So I think I've taken it out twice since then just to make sure that the score was 1-1 <laughs> and that I didn't jump in a swimming pool for no apparent reason and um, yeah we, yeah we didn't go down to the conference and uh, so yeah yeah so um, I mean, well, I think we should all adopt that as a goal celebration method from now yeah. on actually jumping in swimming pools really close wherever it's possible of course yeah. it, it, it was a weird weird feeling I mean that's well it's 23 years ago now that's bizarre, and and I, you know, you think of all the things that have happened, you know, just you know, to us. On a personal level, you think, my God, you know, I married the woman I was with that night. 
I've since divorced the woman I was with that night. We have got a kid together. I've had another kid. I'm now living in Cardiff, whatever. And you think of all of, you know, everything that's happened since. Yeah. And yet that moment, you know, just seems like yesterday. You know, not even yesterday. It seems like this morning, you know, thinking back to it. Um, and, yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, they say that, you know, you hear goal scorers, you know, in football, that when you score some goals, you just completely lose it. And you just run and, you you know, you're, you're off your head. What do they always say? Strikers, you know, better than sex, that kind of thing, you know. It's, yeah. And, um, yeah, that was the nearest I will ever come to scoring a major, major <laughs> goal and losing it and going completely off my head, just bellowing through the corridors of this hotel in Bandung with, you know, startled Indonesians kind of like looking at me. <laughs> I'm an ugly looking thing at the best of times, six foot three madman, just <laughs> through all the corridors of this hotel, through reception, through the restaurant, out patio and into the pool. Well, I wonder if it's worse to have, to have been there and to gone through the seemingly endless uh, last 20 minutes that seemed to go on forever by all counts, or to have been distant and remote, itching to get a result and relying on one bit of factual information that's not there then suddenly it is there, you know, the, the tension building up. What would be worse? I, I think, I think, well, basically, I mean, I mean, I managed, you know, I was back in Britain about a week or two after that game and obviously, you know, catching up with friends and stuff. And I think from what they had yeah. to say, it was infinitely worse being there. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was I, extremely tense that last half hour. It was probably the longest half hour of my life that, especially when we, the guy went through on goal and tried yeah. to chip it over Ormerod and it's just like, it seemed you, forever. You yeah. You as a lad. Uh, ironically, um, I wasn't there either. So the, the two people older, maybe more likely to have gone. Um, now I wasn't there either. I was working Saturdays back then. I was in Southampton, so I was halfway there. Well, a third of the way there or something. But um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have been able to get time off. Um, I was pretty skinned, so I couldn't afford to take a hit on earnings. And um, I don't think I would have been able to get a ticket anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, from your point of view, though, Peter, yeah, you say it went on forever. <laughs> yeah, that last the last half hour was just endless. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and yeah just yeah. a general sigh of just the relief. I don't even think it was joy at the end. It was just pure relief that somehow, having looked like we were guaranteed to go down all season, pretty much that we somehow survived. And it wasn't. It was all worth all those months of coming back and under grit. And yeah, yeah. yeah, it still makes no sense that season. I mean, no, and trying to follow it. I mean, in the for the vast. Bar the final few games of that season, I was living and working in California as an entertainment journalist and trying to follow what was going on back home on the very, very primitive form of the internet that we had in the office, but I didn't have access to back in my in my flat or you know normal life as we do now on phones and whatever. And I remember we beat, I think it was Chester on the opening day of the season. Ian Baird scored, and I remember thinking, oh, we signed Baird, crikey, you know. Must be getting on a bit, but oh, you know, he'll do all right for us. He'll score a few goals, you know, down at that level. We should be all right this season. And just week after week, you know, the way that you follow football when you're you're abroad. Back then, I mean, the main source of news was BBC World Service. You know, you tune into that kind of at uh, you know uh, eleven o'clock in the morning or whenever it was or something. You know, to find out final score depending on what you know where you were and you know on the planet. Um, you know, no internet, no nothing. And it just became, you know, obvious after a few weeks that not, or not all was right. You know, because I, was, I wasn't getting all of the information about, you know, uh, I, I knew things were bad off the pitch. I knew that we weren't uh, best friends, shall I say, with the people who were running the club at the time. 
I knew Jimmy Case was struggling, you know, with morale, but I didn't realize it was quite that bad. Um, so, yeah, it, that came as a bit of a shock. Yeah. So I always how, remember, how we got ourselves out of that, I really don't know. But yeah. I always remember the Grid's first game, he got booed before the game. I think it was against yeah. Hull, we won 3-0. Yeah, and won he, three he nil. got booed and we scored in about the second minute and suddenly the atmosphere changed, changed somehow. Back. Completely, it went from, yeah, he was literally heckled as being, you know, a Belotti stooge and that sort of thing at the start. And, a, you know, kind of Archer's man just kind of brought in yeah. to see us down. And then suddenly it was like, oh, we might actually, in two, within two minutes, we'd scored. And it was a different, yeah. totally different complexion. And from there, the home we crowd. Never, was... we, we didn't, um, yeah, it's funny. I'm going back, um, uh, I'm going through back through a lot of, you know, play, old player interviews at the moment. Um, we'll probably touch on, or might touch on why later, uh, before I go off on yet another tangent, which I'm very, very proud <laughs> to do, unfortunately. But I've been, um, you know, rereading a lot of stuff and player quotes and stuff, you know, from, uh, you know, players who I've interviewed since then. Um, and they said, yeah, it was like, you know, at home, we just we just turned things around completely. But yeah. of course, away from home. I don't think we lost at home under under grip, but we didn't win away. I think it was the... No, uh, I think three points, I think. Yeah. You know, Although two of them in the last two away games. And, yeah, yeah. Three, three which are obviously vital. Away. Yeah. So... You know, we still couldn't do it away from home, but at home. Yeah. But that Hereford game, I mean, I've, oh, it was, you know, speaking to people who were there, and obviously, you know, it was, it, it was quite strange coming home, getting off the plane and catching up with friends. And it was almost like they're kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the Iranian hostage or the hostages we had, like Terry Waite and stuff from John McCarthy in the 80s, you know, they come home and they debrief afterwards. And I think everyone, all of my friends who were there, seemed to use me as the debriefing exercise. <laughs> they had to sit there and almost kind of unload about what it had been like and where they had been. And uh, uh, a mutual friend of, of Russell and I, a guy called Gareth Clark, I mean, he watched it from the Hereford end, from behind the goal, as I know quite a few Albion fans did that day, mm. you know, managed to kind of get in and infiltrate the home end and, you know, so he couldn't celebrate. He couldn't do anything. He just had to stand there and take it. And Gareth's got form actually doing that. He, he, there was a game we, uh, some of the older supporters might remember, in 1990, 1991, we played Liverpool away in the Cup, drew 2-2 two, two at Anfield, mm. and they were beating us 2-0, and somehow we came back and got a 2 all yeah. draw. That was Gareth my first was, season. Oh, there you go. Well, it was great. Again, like, like me with 78, 79, yeah. that would have been a great first season. Yeah. Well, they didn't, it was not quite so good afterwards. Oh, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. So that's what I mean about the Albion. You went from, you know, yeah. from 90 minutes from going up to the top division. And yeah, taking Liverpool to extra time in a replay as well when they were should all have conquering. Them. Should, have, should have beaten yeah. them as well. I think, you know, John Burns said since, you know, that, yeah, it was, we went 2 1 up, two, one up and instead of shutting up shop, you know, um, we let them back into it. I think Jan Mulby came on as sub and started directing play. Ian Rush was in his pomp. And I, th- I, know, I know he scored one against into the North Bank that day, but maybe another. But yeah, Gareth was in the, uh, in the cop up at Anfield then <laughs> uh, when Liverpool was not the most friendliest of places to go, should we say. So yeah, he's got form when it comes to going into the, um, you know, challenging places and watching football games. At times when basically, uh, uh, yes, football was, shall we say, a slightly more violent than it is these days. The other thing is, I mean, you know, now I, I live in Cardiff now, as um, as I may or may not have said. Excuse me if I'm repeating myself, folks. But uh, there are an awful lot of, you know, I mean, Cardiff have a form, shall we say, as well, Cardiff City fans. And 
there were quite a lot of Cardiff fans up there that day who just fancied going along for a bit of a scrap. I don't know where City were playing that day, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's just like, why would you want to go to kind of all the way up to Hereford, you know, just for yeah. have mm. a bit of a kind of punch-up or whatever, but, yeah, crazy days, crazy days. Yeah. Can you believe I think it's like 23 years? Now. I know. Well, and that, yeah. um, since that Doncaster game as well, which was equally stressful and, yeah, the last game you know was what, a, very odd. Yeah, it's the one more than, and it's it's strange. It's kind of you know when you're working away in abroad and stuff like that. I mean, that's just your life. You're just getting on with things. But um, Hereford, you know, we think, oh yeah, I've still got my old ticket. I've never used. I dream about Doncaster game, and yet again for that one, I was on my way out to Indonesia for that. And yet I I have weird dreams where I I'm at that game and I I turn up for it and I either can't get in or I turn up and I'm standing in the wrong place and I'm not with my old friends where I always used yeah. to stand in the place I used to stand in North Bank. And that's weird because, I mean, the last ever game I saw at the Goldstone was probably about 18 months before that was when we played. Do you remember we played Canvey Island in the FA Cup? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And John Keeley was, uh, our old goalkeeper, was in goal for, for Canvey that night. And little did I know, but that was my last ever game at the Goldstone. And because mm. after that, you know, I, I sent abroad, worked abroad and stuff like that. Mm. So, you know, I, um, I, I haven't been to the Goldstone before. Well, I didn't even go to the Doncaster one. And yet I have dreams about that match. That was my, my only ever game in the East, in the East Terrace that day. Because it wasn't open for much of the time I was watching. So we know yeah. what the open one, but it was the only absolutely hammered down with rain. We got absolutely drenched. Well, talking, yeah. talking about terraces of the Goldstone and just tracking back a bit uh, for Spencer's story. Yeah. When you were growing up and going to games, did you graduate from one area to the next? Where, where did you, who, who did you go with and how did you start? Oh, com- yeah, completely. Started off, I, I started going with uh, my, um, my teammates from Warren Bucks Mini Minor Football Club, which is kind of like the Horsham and District, you know, Mini Minor League. So I used to go, we, we'd play a game in the morning and then we'd all go home, get showered, and then you pile you know in uh, in cars you know very illegally it was always like 10 up or something you know kids in boots and things like this and whatever uh, and you had to get down to the goldstone early then um to get a place i mean i was quite lucky because i was even about 10 or 11 years old i was quite tall but most of the other t- you know members of the team they were very small you know little school kids and stuff so we had to get there early to get relatively close down the front because the crowds were so huge then um so yeah we started off on the um west terrace lower at the north end so if you can imagine the old the old west terrace uh closest to kind of like the north bank so i started off there and then for some really random reason after a while i ended up going over to the east terrace i think just because i thought i wonder what the view from over there looks like you know that big East Terrace, particularly on night games, you know, used to look huge. So I thought, well, I'll go start going over there. I did a few years over there. And then I just thought, why the hell am I going between the East and the West when clearly all of the fun is going on in the North? Uh, so, yeah, went up to the North Bank and stayed in the North Bank, you know, until the end, basically. So yeah. until the Canby game, my last ever match there. So never, ever. Actually, I did. I Once I went in the South, South Terrace once. For the Millwall game in 1985-86, which was again was just a security nightmare, and I didn't fancy the North Bank because I thought, well, I want to come out of this alive. Didn't fancy the East Terrace because that was too close to the Millwall fans. So somehow I ended up in a seat in the South Terrace, and it just didn't seem right. But then again, 
you know, Millwall, strange times. Got to come up with a kind of plan. Well, not even a plan B. You've got to come up <laughs> with a plan F for Millwall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I did the same. I, I went all round. I went to the south once as well, I think, just the one time. Again, it yeah. didn't feel right. Um, I used to go with my dad's... Um, colleagues who had season tickets in the west for a while then i went with friends as i got into school school age um right down the bottom of the east near the south and then gradually worked my way back up yeah. the east where i'd originally gone was my first games as a kid cliche yeah. classic of you know dad passed down towards the front or something like that yeah yeah with a drawer from the garage to stand on which i unfortunately <laughs> refused to stand on for some reason so which but, game would that have been um, my first game was pretty similar time to you it was uh, the 79 80 season uh, Middlesbrough, the two-one win. Um, so I started. Yeah, right at the end. Right at the end. Wasn't that? Game, yeah. Wasn't yeah. that the game? The Middlesbrough won that season, where the South Stand caught fire after the match. Ooh, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you to be honest. I can't remember I much about. It. He's denying all knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy, Arson, yeah. Twist, twisted fire starter. We found our culprit after 41 years. No, it was. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I think I've, I've got a feeling it might. I stand corrected. Somebody yeah. will know far better than me. But I've got a funny feeling. Yeah, everyone had gone home, so there was no threat to life. I don't think. But yeah, the back of. The, the south stand went up in flames not <laughs> feeling it was that match but yeah yeah, yeah. They, so we'll blame it, you anyway it sounds like we're all glory hunters from the year we first started supporting the club we all had a good season especially <laughs> you and i spent so we've obviously picked them on their way up and you know nothing to do with the fact we were just too young to have gone early and we did or whatever it's just a matter <laughs> of surely just the glory yeah it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just like musical musical chairs isn't it it's excellent <laughs> it's kind of like the music stopped and we had a seat happy days that's it yeah Down, take it all in so yeah but that See, first you say about that first season of yours russ i mean hmm. that was another that was another great escape year i mean that year i mean we were we were just gone by about november third of the season gone and we were bottom by country mile and um we won one nil at nottingham forest back in the days when nobody used to win at nottingham forest that was you know nottingham forest under brian claff and, and the, you know in their pomp and uh, I think they'd gone unbeaten at home, like 42 games or something. Maybe even have been more than that, two years. Yeah. And that's against, you know, the cream of European competition as well. We went up there and won one nil. Bit of a back-to-the-wall job. And completely from then onwards, I mean, I formed from about November to right the way through that Middlesbrough game at the end of the season. I think we were, you know, it was kind of you're almost borderline European form. It was, you know, we were marvellous that year. So, yeah, it's good fun. And we smashed Palace at home, but I think it was Boxing Day 3 0. Marvellous. <laughs> Wonderful Christmas time. Christmas 1979, we beat, what was it? We beat Palace at home 3 0, and we beat Manchester City 4 1 a few days after that. Hmm. Um, and again, completely unrealistic expectations. You think, here you go, this is life. It's always going to yeah. be like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. speaking of Palace, that segues in nicely to what I was going to ask you next, actually. Um, oh, Lord. Next was the, um, the the famous McShane game. That I um, that's when I first met you. Um, the aforementioned friends Gareth, um, I knew through a work colleague, and he said, "Oh, this Albion fan I know, Gareth's going to the game." Book up, so I hooked up with him. I think I think I met him once or twice before, and then went to the game with him. And he said he was meeting his mate, which was you. And um, yeah. we hooked up. Um, I'd re I'd read an article about 
um, an Albion fan in Match of the Day magazine, I think before that at some point, if I'm getting my dates right. And I've read this name, Spencer Vignes, and thought, oh, okay, it's an Albion fan working in one of the major sort of magazines. Oh, that's, that's quite good. Um, didn't think anything more of it. And obviously, having met you and you started saying what you did for a living, I put two and two together, worked out, oh, yes, that's you. So um, anyway, we, you, you put two and two think... together, and for, for once you did get four <laughs> yeah, rather yeah. than. 6.3 um, or whatever. Yeah, and I think, if I remember rightly, you'd organised a pay, you paid for a ticket, but you had to collect it, you'd organised it through the club or something, hadn't you? And you had to collect it from around the Palace ticket end or something like that. I remember the You know what, I have, I have, you know, you remember that far better than I do. Yeah. Well, we, we I were mean... I think, to the main ticket office, so right through all the Palace fans, and yeah. um, you got, you collected the ticket you'd, all, you'd paid for, and... Um, yeah, I don't know. what I think it was in the, the away end anyway. So we then walked back round. And I think if I remember rightly, you bellowed out a massive yell of seagulls while we were walking around. <laughs> I thought, yeah. oh my God, is this, what's this journalist guy doing? He's a nutter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, probably not my proudest moment, but every now and then, why not? You're just like, just like pulling the pin on the grenade just to see what happens, basically. Yeah, I mean, that was, and also, I, I think that was, that was almost like a night off for me as well because I mean at that time I was living up near uh, Wakefield up in Yorkshire right and I was covering the northeast of England as um in a in a as, as well as the match of the day magazine in a freelance capacity I was covering like leads up to the Scottish border for the for the observer and foot you know covering uh, the football patches you know Middlesbrough Sunderland Newcastle and what have you uh so yeah i wasn't working that night so i'd come down specially for the for the game i wasn't covering it i wasn't in the press box i was on the terraces and yeah you kind of revert to type a little bit dare i say it Um, also don't you because you have a rare chance to get your hair down and and really just relax and get back what little i think yeah i had slightly more (laughs) hair than i did that yeah 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 um but yeah. yeah, so I mean, we, we then subsequently managed to get ourselves unscathed into the grounds. Um, and uh, the things I remember about that game are very clear. First of all, the atmosphere was unbelievable as we went in. I think they were doing the PALACE song over and over yeah. again. It, it was literally uh, close close to getting deafening. It was so loud. And it was down the yeah. other end of the way, wasn't it, near where the, the so-called ultras area is now for Palace. Um, well, I remember us. I mean, I may be wrong, but I remember us having the whole of that stand. Yeah, that I think we did, or most of it at least. Um, yeah, definitely. The, the whole touchline, pretty much. And yeah, I yeah. think we had like five and a half thousand fans there, or something. There was a huge amount of fans there. I don't know the yeah. exact thing. And the atmosphere was amazing. Obviously, the yeah. game went on. We all probably know about this, any listeners, but uh, it was the game where McShane scored, or rather, didn't score with his uh, <laughs> slash headers. Everyone thought it was. Like, come off the sorry. palace's shoulder, I think, hadn't it? Um, I've got, you know what? To this, to this day, I, I don't even know if I've watched that goal back. Tell you the truth, I, yeah. I just remember the ball coming over, and I, yeah, I'm aware of you know. Well, it was maybe McShane's ear or shoulder, or it was a Palace player. I, I just didn't give a start. Yeah. I just thought, it, you know, it went in the net, and yeah. we just went bananas. Yeah. When you consider the last time there, we lost five nil as well. Yeah. It's like. You know, Exactly. Well, we hadn't played Palace for so many years until that 5-0 game. And um, I just remember that that was another epic for another day, maybe, to explain what all happened that day. But the, the police presence was insane. Um, anyway, we got into the yeah. ground one. And, you know, to go so far behind so quickly to Andy Effing Johnson, as he was um, oh, oh, described by yeah. Albion. You know, for waiting all those years and then having that result, it was 
it was. I think we were five down and after an hour as well. When we managed to, despite having ten men, we managed to keep it to five in the last half hour. That yeah. was probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, that night up at, at Palace for various reasons was one of my happiest, you know, yeah. Albion sporting mm. nights of my life. And it's that, that five nil. Funnily enough, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I managed that. But the five nil game as well. I didn't work that day. So whether I'd swap shifts or something and managed to get away because it was Palace or whatever, it yeah. was, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I was there for that one as well. <laughs> and wish you had that. <laughs> and that was just, that was, yeah, the, the complete flip of, of that 1-0 McShane night was that 5-0. Yeah. And then being kept in at the end, having lost 5-0 was the ultimate ignominy or whatever, I think, as well. Well, so. you, you know what, you remember that better than me. I mean, it's, it's um, I re- oh, God, I remember another game against one of our other so-called rivals, Portsmouth back in 1984 when we were 1-0 up at half-time and we conceded five goals in 13 minutes in the second half. That's impressive even for Albion. Oh, (laughs) and it it was horrible. It was like we were awful, it rained, um, and that was one of the few games I left. Actually, no, not a few games. It's the only game I've ever left early. And uh, that that was, again, because I knew what the Portsmouth police were going yeah. to do uh, or Southampton police as it always used to be in the away ends because they bust the, the any policeman in Southampton who wanted overtime at Portsmouth came in and did the <laughs> away end and it was you know well known fact and so with about 15-20 minutes to go I remember a few of us looking at each other just thinking let's just get out of here mm-hmm. and it, yeah it was lashing down you remember that open end at Portsmouth yeah. which was and uh, it was a rail replacement bus service and it was just I mean I look back and laugh now but oh my goodness I think my I first think experience I... there was quite similar I think we lost 4-2 but it was we were basically kind of marched back to the you know, past our baying mob of the Portsmouth fans and then on trains weren't allowed to take the train back to London it had to be like the Brighton one so we were like basically creep away yeah. from the, the group of people to try and get the train to London instead and yeah, yeah I remember uh, yeah I remember that we, we were two run up in that one we? yeah, yeah. isn't that the game Harry Redknapp was their manager I think yeah I think so yeah when they were on the way up yeah there's nothing worse than losing to rivals or perceived rivals in Portsmouth's case um, but the big shame one was obviously was, was very cathartic after what had happened before and I remember the goal celebration was mental we ended up rows and rows away from where we started and we yeah yeah the thing about that game was after well during and afterwards realizing I put um, some I think McShane had scored an own goal a couple of weeks earlier and I fancied him to score so yeah. I was one of those people that did win some money on it. I put a, I think I put a tenner on him at 50 to 1. I managed to get 50 to 1, um, which was 500 on him to score first goal. And it's only after the match and we're walking back, bounding along, exhilarated to a beaten palace and exercised demons and all that stuff. And we were chatting away and I realised, hang on a minute, I, put it, I, I was nervous about whether he'd score a last minute goal. And um, I put another tenner on. Uh, for the last goal. So I'd come in on both of them, won a thousand pounds, realised that as we were walking back, having to contain myself somewhat, you knowing we're walking through enemy territory. Um, <laughs> we were going, I think, to a pub in Ballum, who one of yeah. you guys, Was a friend in Ballum. or something? I can't remember. Yeah. I think it might have been, yeah. And we, yeah. we went there and um, whoever it was that had told us to meet up there for a drink, um, he was... Look, we were looking at the screen and they had Pete Townsend on the screen. I remember saying, oh, what's going on there? And whoever it was that hosted us there was saying, oh, yeah, we have some quite big bands coming sometimes. That's probably a video feed of what we've had before. He then went to the loo and came back and goes, oh, actually, that's happening right now. That's a live feed. So we, yeah, we it, was, it was, it was, it was your, your, your bang on, but it was me who went to the loo. And I, because I thought, oh, oh yeah. crikey, I, I, I thought, I thought this loo is a bit loud. 
And I opened, <laughs> there was, uh, I came out of the loo and there was the, you, you know what it's like when you go into, you know, kind of toilets and there's all different doors and you think, how did I get in here, particularly when you've had a few beers? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the door I came through to get to the door leading to the toilet. Where does this door open? And I opened the other door, opened it, and there was Pete Townsend about 10 feet away from me on stage. Um, <laughs> you know, playing away in his guitar. And I just, I remember going back and saying to you lot, well, you know, you'll never guess, but, and I think we caught the last couple of numbers, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember that was, I mean, that was perfect because I remember after that, the gig finished and we went back to our table, sat down and it was around about the time. Do you remember there was that, um, that advert, was it, um, was it for Carling? You know, if Carling did holidays. Yeah. And I thought, oh, how much better can tonight get? You know, we've had a great night. We meet up with good friends. You go to Palace, you out-sing them, you beat them. You go back to a pub, you have another good night. Pete Townsend gets up, does an impromptu gig for you. I thought, I wonder if I sit here uh, and really think, you know, kind of like enough, uh, Helena Christensen will just come, you know, open those doors and come right into this pub and just kind of sit down next and say, take me home. I thought, you know, tonight, this is the way that tonight is going. This day cannot get any better. It was one of those. Wasn't it? Didn't, she didn't turn up, but I mean, oh god, that that day just ticked all the boxes on every other level, didn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. And the other bit about the game was: do you remember Clinton Morrison was thrown goal um, for a potential equaliser? We'd already seen it was offside. The flag had gone up. Yeah. Palace didn't seem to have looked at it, and they were all starting to build themselves up for a goal celebration. He put the ball away. They started. Some of them started to celebrate, and we were already there with the fingers up. Um, <laughs> Suggesting that the uh, the score wasn't quite, but, but unless quite you, right. Uh, unless you support like one of the big, maybe the big six or whatever, you go through so much dross watching football over the years. Yeah. But two for nights like that, it's like yeah. the, the one, I, the classic one I always think of is the same week we lost home to Walsall, who were nine men for an hour, and then yeah. beat Man City in the cup that yeah. same week. And it's like you know you kind of you live for those sorts of moments, don't you? Because I mean, there's so many terrible games or just ordinary games where you wonder why you bothered. And then well, it's like, I, oh. I, I, no, you're, you're dead right, Peter. I, I mean, I think I'm right in saying the seas, some of the seasons merge after a while. But I mean, that year when we won at Palace in the chain header, I mean, otherwise that was a pretty bad season. Yeah. I can't remember there being many highlights. No, I think we beat Leeds at home, like we seemed to tend to do in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't think there was much. We went down quite comfortably, didn't we, in the end? Yeah, so. yeah by quite a bit. So, yeah, an awful lot of draws and not a lot else. And the, yeah, I think we yeah, also and... lost the Palace at home a month later or something like that. So we lost... We did, our, yeah, 3-2, wasn't it? Yeah, in the last minute, wasn't it, or something? So they got their revenge pretty you've, quickly. You've got me there. It's like, yeah, yeah, I remember the... Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But that was a great night, Russ. That was a top night. One of my... Yeah, if I had to do a desert island night of nights or, or list of nights, that would probably be right up there, I think, that one. Maybe that should be a sequence we do for the uh, getting yeah. have a desert island football night all day. Yeah. Desert island list, yeah. That QPR away game in the promotion season would be up there, I think. That, that was, was pretty great. epic. Yeah, you know what? I've never, been to, I never went to Loftus Road. Well, they're still at Loftus Road or whatever they're calling it this week anyway. Um no, I've, ne- I mean, I've never been there. I mean, there's at one point, I think, you know, between kind of being an Albion supporter and also being a, a, a football writer, I think there was, I was down to about four grounds that I haven't been to. Um, and then, yeah, um, it's a lot more than that now because an awful lot kind of, you know, changed grounds and moved and stuff from whatever. And yeah, so I'm trying to remember what they are. Anyway, that's for another list, basically. But yeah. I'll never get the full 92. 
No, it's like I've kind of got stuck quite a lot on. I mean, I'm in the mid '80s or something like that. But I've been this same. It's like the Morecambe's and Accringtons who've come up since we've been in the, the yeah. top two divisions. And I'm, yeah, I haven't. Had, I'm not going to go up to Morecambe or Accrington. Yeah. And then right. yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I've done yeah, and they blur after a while. Yeah. I've been there though, and then you think actually have I? <laughs> it's like I was convinced I've been to Northampton. Uh, no, I haven't. Northampton's one. And Walsall, funnily, funnily enough, never been to Walsall, never been to Northampton. Uh, the Not missed an awful lot. Yeah, no, this is true. This is true. But the problem is, it's like those few, those missing few, yeah. when you actually kind of realise that you haven't done them, it's like, oh, I need to do them now. And then, of course, typically you're all in the wrong divisions. And so, you know, you never get round to it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We digress. Yeah. Again. One of those things. Well, the, the worrying thing, of course, is that we may not have a 92 to aim for. So yeah. Well, we already don't have a 92 at the moment. So. Yeah. yeah, we'll get onto that more later on. But yeah, I'm in the mid-80s as well. So yeah. Barry actually was one of the ones I hadn't been to. Oh, yeah, really? Barry, yeah, Barry was another one where um, I remember, God, I'd done a, I covered a game in the Northwest. Um, this was our year when Bobby Zamora scored that wonder goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, a berry, which would have been what 2001 2002 uh, and yeah I'd done a game that morning and I managed to get over and find my match report and get over to Gig Lane in time to watch the album hook up with a couple of mates and watch it there and that was a game where yeah Bobby Zamora picked up a pass from I want to say Nathan Jones not sure can't remember uh, and ran from just inside or around about the halfway line all the way in on goal and then just chipped the goalkeeper nonchalantly that's one of my, that was just brilliant. And it, he scored at the end where we were as well. Mm. So that was another one where as soon as he he clipped it like a golf shot over the keeper. And it was like this perfect second before it hit the net where we knew what was coming. And that was that was another one, slightly less of us, Russ, but that was another way you just run around madly and then you finish <laughs> celebrating and you're thinking, I'm not standing anywhere near who I, was, who I came to the game with. So, yeah cracking yeah i was annoyed i missed that afterwards because i think i I could have gone my dad went but for some reason i didn't go and i've seen that goal so many times since then on our various clips and that sort of thing it's like obviously one of the more he still still holds that up as i think there's two goals he still actually three there's the one he scored against halifax yeah um i think the season before that then there's the one against berry uh and one against wolves he talks about which is when i think we beat live on sky wasn't it yeah, yeah, that's the one right. all. Yeah, the one all, not the four one that season. The one all, he's it's that one as well, which I wasn't at. So no, no, yeah, those not. are kind of, yeah, those are, he says those are his favourite kind of Brighton goals. Um, yeah, um, and the yeah, I, I missed that I one as well. Yeah, that's true. And the Leeds one when he came back as well. I think yeah. for different reasons. Yeah, that was good. You know, that was good. Yeah, that yeah. and the one the following couple of days later against Bristol City was really good Bristol as City. well. And yeah, the yeah. F- first home goal back in the uh, the Amex yeah. was a. Uh, yeah. Pretty special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. Well, I think we've just about come to a half-time whistle. Um, yet to come, we have the second half and also extra time where we'll be getting you to do the quiz. What about penalties? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> maybe that as well. Oh, maybe my that. God. <laughs> um, we're also going to be, well, in the second half, we're going to talk about uh, your career, Spencer, in more detail and about your books that you've written, particularly about the Albion um, and some other bits of topical debate. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to part two of the BRP with me, Russell Guyville, with Peter Marsh and with Spencer Vignes, our special guest this week. Hello. Welcome back, boys. Hello. 
<laughs> are you partaking of any beverages? I might be. Uh, <laughs> it's red, and that much I know. And it's very nice. It's very quaffable. So uh, yes, yes. So well, if, I, if I make even less sense now than I did before the break, then that's why. <laughs> Peter, you presumably you're not because you're up till three o'clock drinking last night. No, I, I, I maybe possibly have done uh, <laughs> relented. I, I'm on a, a Hardywood Great Return IPA. Um, my fiance ordered a load of um, beers from Beer Fifty Two, and it was a collection from Virginia in America. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, apparently, this is one one from. And I looked at the label after opening; it's seven point five percent. So, <laughs> I, I deal start to a Sunday afternoon. I'm going to continue. Let's see. Yeah, Let's see how things regress from here. Then <laughs> it's <laughs> quite a small bottle in, in its defence. What, what are you on, Russ? What are you? Uh... Uh, I'm on this, which I'm just opening now. Oh, nice sound effects. Oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> quality control. Keeping the quality from spilling. Um, I'm on a Yeasty Boys digital IPA, so I get it in HD quality, I presume, or something like that. <laughs> I don't, it's um, it's one that's probably a bit more familiar to some people of a beer persuasion. Yeasty I'm Boys. Quite, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit concerned, Russ, because basically I think that's the kind of you know proper real drink, real ale drink. It's just kind of dressed up for young people, isn't it? It's like the yeah. blue and it's got little rockets and stars on and gimmicky stuff and whatever. <laughs> all the artwork, isn't it? It's, that's what it's all about. They, they're getting more and more creative, those things. I quite like it, really, to be honest. But it's all in the brand. If it means the yeah. young people are drinking more sensible beer, as in yeah. proper beer, then yeah, I'm fine with that. Why not? Why not, indeed? Yeah. Children's play things. Yeah, it looks like my son's decorated that. Mine, on the <laughs> other hand, is in a very old-fashioned-looking bottle. From like, it looks like it's got a medicine bottle from. from oh my like, god! About twenty years ago, or something. Actually, it does. Very old. Well, you know, where did you say it was from? What part? Of Virginia. Um, yeah, state. I don't know which part of Virginia, but somewhere oh, in Virginia in the US, isn't it? Isn't it? Some kind of weird old backwards. <laughs> well, I'll let you know if I feel better after taking it. <laughs> well, they they're supposed to be good. These um, the online ones, beer fifty two amongst them, are supposed to be pretty good, yeah. aren't they? I'm, what, what, uh, do you recommend them? I mean, if, if we do, yeah. we should get them to sponsor us so when they're listening, <laughs> which I'm sure they're not. But if they were, then uh, get, get on board with us, guys. I think <laughs> online ordering of beer has gone up significantly in the last uh, so, few yeah. months. Just a bit. Just a <laughs> bit. Amongst, uh, well, along with Zoom, they're one of the people to benefit most, I'd say, probably. Yeah, mm. I think you're yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, well, the verdict, this is really tasty, actually. I think I've had it before, but it's uh, very good. Where'd yeah. you get that from? Um, just an offie, actually, nearby. I bought a load of beers which I forgot I'd bought um, and put in the garage for storage um, a while, just, just before the lockdown by chance, not by planning. And um, I just remembered them a few days ago. So I thought, bonus, lovely. That must have been a good moment, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. I would kind of, yeah, rewind that. You, you bought beers that you forgot you'd bought. I know, it doesn't sound like me at all. I That's how much of other beer he'd had in the meantime. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been in a position where I've bought beers and then forgotten I've bought them. I know very well where they are. Uh, yeah, particularly in these strange times. It's um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm becoming an alcoholic, but um, you're working. Been a few days in the last few weeks where I I I haven't. But mind you, I mean it's it's not like I'm polishing off you know five bottles a night or whatever. It's <laughs> You know, it's yeah. Medicinal purposes, yeah, fair enough. Like you, Peter, with your well, you really are medicinal purposes with that. Thing, yeah, right? I'm feeling better already. I may. I've got to say, it looks disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 does well, it is. It is yeah. a very odd bottle. This. It's, uh, that is. That is weird. You should keep that yeah. bottle. 
Yeah, I kind of looked at it in the fridge and I was like, that's a bit different. I'll just open that one. It is more yeah. like cowpole, isn't it? Yeah. Very <laughs> odd. They always say that tastes nice. So, um, yeah, maybe. Maybe you, yeah, yeah, you're the one who's in the right, we're in the wrong. Yeah. What are we? I feel reinvigorated. That's all I can say. Well, there you go. Don't knock it, quite frankly. Different person to half an hour ago. <laughs> well, I think the second half's well and truly underway here, isn't it? <laughs> Started as we mean to go on, um, except for Peter, who will, as I said, probably fall asleep within about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so getting back on track with um, talking about you, Spencer, and your um, your Albion stuff, and we, we've we've mentioned how you grew up an Albion fan, etc. What about career-wise? So you've obviously we know now you're a writer, sports writer, journalist. Um, you've covered football and tennis in particular, haven't you? I think. But yeah, tell us yeah. how this all came about. When did you sure. start? Well, I always wanted to be um, always wanted to be a journalist, even though I was pretty average at um, English and at school in general. Um, I think, like a lot of people who uh, get into journalism, I'd seen all the presidents' men with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford about the Watergate Film. scandal. Yeah, when I was about twelve or thirteen, I thought, "Well, that looks good." Various other films about journalism as well, but yeah, the flaw in the whole plan was that you know I was I was top set English, but at the bottom, so I was. Yeah, Albion, basically, if you know what I mean. It was kind of, uh, you know, that that kind of, um, that, you know, bottom few places, top of the championship kind of, you know, area. Um, always wanted to get into journalism, wasn't too sure if I ever would. Uh, somehow kind of, uh, and this is back in the days where you had to get a degree to do anything, really. I did a geography degree at City of London Poly and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Worked on the college newspaper. Interviewed a few people. Did they went to a few film premieres? Be in London. Was quite lucky. So uh, and then yeah, went and did what's known as a, a postgraduate entry uh, course in uh, of all places Cornwall. Cornwall actually it was Camborne School of Mines. I went to do a journalism school uh, journalism course at a mining school in Cornwall. <laughs> because basically the funding for the course that I should have gone to uh, didn't come through. So everyone who was offered a place for one particular course was offered a place in another course down in Cornwall. And two people didn't want to go. So I managed to kind of uh, get one of the places for, uh, for, for off them. So off I went to Cornwall, did about six months down there, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, uh, of um, learning your law and your shorthand. You've got to get to 100 words a minute and things like this. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a war correspondent. I think I'd also seen a lot of films, you know, like Salvador and stuff like that. So I decided that I was going to go off and I was going to cover foreign disputes, you know, everywhere. And um, funny enough, in the years since then, I've covered everything pretty much, you know, apart from that. I've done like business and showbiz, news and yeah, entertainment, news, features, sport, all kinds of things. But I've never done foreign correspondent war work. Although knowing now what I know about how lethal it is, I can live with that, to tell you the truth. So yeah, so it went from there. I got I, I uh, got a job, and my first newspaper was in in Berkshire. The Bucks of uh, I can't even say it. See, the wine's taking effect already. <laughs> the Barks and Bucks Observer. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? So uh, that was um, based. Our, our offices were get this on Slough Trading Estate. The glamour. Yeah, it was. This was before the office came along and made uh, made Hollywood of Slough, basically. Uh, right next door to the Mars. If anyone knows uh, Slough, there's a huge Mars factory there. Um, 
which uh, which pumps out fumes, chocolate fumes across the kind of you know western environs of, of Slough. At least I presume it's still there. So yeah, I worked there for about two years, cut the teeth there, and then went into entertainment journalism and um, and kind of ended up going off here, there, and everywhere around the world. And I mean, the last thing I really want to do was get into. I got into sports writing almost by default because once you know, I, I mean, you can't really be an entertainment writer and be touching thirty. That's what I thought. So uh, I thought, no, I'm going to get out. And uh, I'd come back from abroad, got married, was living in London, but didn't want to stay in London. And uh, um, my family were in South Wales, having moved from Sussex by then. And uh, my, uh, my wife or then wife's family were from Yorkshire. And I made a few inquiries to a few people I, I knew in the newspaper industry and said, look, you know, if I went up to Yorkshire and based myself, you know, I'd be around Wakefield. So if you needed a foreign, uh, not foreign correspondent, foreign correspondent for Yorkshire work, if you needed a North of England correspondent to cover sport, football games, whatever, you know, or even news, would you use me? And, I got enough of a positive response to make it think, well, this could go worth, you know, this could be worthwhile if I went freelance and went up north. And that's exactly what I did. And I think you do things like that. I was about 29 and you just think, well, you know, no, no kids or anything like that. You think I'm just going to wing it. And um, the work rolled in. This is when there was still money in journalism and they could afford to pay freelance wages. Um, and you just kind of make it up from there. It's sheer hard work if you're going to be freelance, like in any job. Um, you know, Russ, I, I, I know, you know, it's probably the same with your, you know, what you do as well and everything. It's, um, you've got to work hard and if you're really, really dedicated and you're, you do the job to the best of your ability and you're accurate and you're loyal and everything, then the results will be there. So I started getting, you know, offers from other papers and, um, also being in Yorkshire, there was rugby league. And so I started doing bits and pieces for papers in Australia and New Zealand who had players who were playing over here. Then the observer, yeah, the observer asked me to start doing the North of England, you know, for them. Match of the Day magazine, you know, there's other bits and pieces, and, you know, freelancing for them. So, yeah, I kind of got into it, you know, the sports side of things from, from there. This was like the mid to late, yeah, late 1990s. Hmm. Um, and I he- always thought, well, at least... Uh, uh, hopefully I'll never have to cover the Albion. You know, I never wanted to write about the Albion. I was doing football games, you know, in the top flight in the championship and Albion were down, you know, we weren't there then. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, Albion were rarely up in the northeast anyway. So we didn't really cross paths uh, until, funnily enough, um, yeah, well, one or two games. I remember going to Cruel Way during one particularly bad season where we lost 2-1. And then there was a game I got, I got sent to Ellen Road to cover us in a match. I've got a feeling, Russ, it may have been the same season as, um, as the Palace game we were talking about, uh, yeah. where we went up there and drew three all. Yeah, it was, yeah. You, you, you might remember this, Pete. Um, yeah, again, so there was that lead, Leeds home and Leeds away. And that was one of those games where Leon Knight just had a blinder. Yeah, we were two up, weren't we? And then yeah. they equalised in the 90-something minute or something. Yeah, like two up and three two up. Yeah. Um, just a kamikaze game. I covered that as a journalist as well. And that was, um, yeah, I, I never liked the match reporting side of the Albion. Um, Is that because you felt you feel you might be overcompensating, be unbiased, and get too biased for the other team? Or you're worried about being too biased for Albion? Or just it's too stressful in terms of like a, a the Albion as well? Everything. Because Albion to me was always watching it. Friends, it was yeah. up beforehand maybe, 
Um, I've always been very good at being, you know, I mean, it's, it's first rule of journalism is, you know, you've got to be impartial. Uh, and I'm very, very good at doing that. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to think, you know, particularly now, now I've grown up and I don't lose my head and, you know, smash things up and whatever when Brighton lose, which is what I used to in about, you know, when I was about 17, you know, come home and just throw things left, right and centre and whatever poor girl you're going out with, you make her life a misery on Saturday night. I'd like to think I'm a little bit more mature about these things now. And, you know, I'm able to go to games now, Albion games, and, and go to the pub afterwards. And when people are sitting there with their blinkers on, I'm able to actually go, well, you know what? We didn't deserve anything. And I think, it's funny, I think football fans are more like that now. Or maybe, you know, Albion fans are just a little bit more realistic. I think, you know, it's, 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 we're more willing to kind of sit down over a beer afterwards and, and pull a match apart. And I've, 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 I've heard far better sports reports given verbally after an Albion game by Albion fans than I have by actually professional sports writers. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because they know they know their subject matter. You know, they've seen games left, right and centre, up and down all the leagues. Mm. And I think Brighton fans maybe, you know, I think I, I think fans of certain clubs where you have really lived and breathed it. You know, mm. I'm not on about um you know, Arsenal fans who panic when they're ninth or tenth. Yeah, but the likes of us and Bournemouth who've come from the bottom and yeah. kind of yeah. yeah. Swansea the same, Cardiff yeah. to an extent as well, just down the road from me here. Yeah, you well, know. They, they, Cardiff and Swansea were both down with us when we were um, yeah. almost going out of the league and all that. And Hull as well, there's a few yeah. that became yeah. top division teams. Yeah, Swansea, I mean, Swansea, uh, I, I, a lot of mirror images there because Swansea also had a game not so long ago, after us actually, 2003, after Hereford, where, you know, a do or die game where if they lost it, they were going to go out of the football league. So I think when, you know, you, you, you get a far better a sense of perspective mm. and everything when you, when you follow um, a club like ours or a Bournemouth or a Hull or, you know, a Cardiff or a Swansea than you do, you know, oh God, you know, the amount of times I've sat down with mates of mine and stuff and, you know, they support like, you know, clubs at the top or even your West Ham's really, even yeah. they can't take their blinkers off because, you know, I mean, a nightmare for them is getting relegated from the Premier League. Well, it's, the, it's the Arsenal thing is the classic because I mean it's like Arsenal in crisis because they're seventh in the Premier League or or yeah as you say one team goes down and it's like their fans have been through like Leeds fans say how much their team's been their fans have been through and it's like well you were down in League One for like two years that's the worst you've been through. To be fair, I can kind of, I, I can understand the Leeds thing a little bit because you know I mean I mean you know it wasn't so long ago well, I say not so long ago but they were winning the league you know they they've got a right. I think of all the clubs, maybe in Manchester City. I also, I've, I, I remember Manchester City going down to what is now League One. I actually covered them playing at uh, Booden Crescent at York in a, a famous game. In I think it was the ninety-seven, ninety-eight season, uh, where most football writers were sent there that day to a press box, which is the size of a table I'm sat at here. Uh, and it wasn't to do match reports. It was to basically write a feature about how has it got to the point where Manchester City <laughs> playing at Booth and Crescent. And, and the thing that made our day was that basically York beat them 2-1 as well. Um, and that was, you know, I, I, I think, you know, when you glimpse that other side, mm. then um, I think you've got more right to kind of be heard a little bit. Um, but that's just what I think anyway. Uh, and I think Brighton fans, yeah, you know, it's it's you can't you can't pull the wool over our eyes, you know. Unlike with fans of some of the top clubs, where you know, I, I think 
you just expect to be entertained mm. every game and, and sometimes you know you, you've got to be told some certain you know home truths I think the yeah. danger of course is with even with Albion the longer it goes since Hereford and since Gillingham years and with Dean the more likely fans are the new fans will come in which you need to happen anyway but they won't necessarily they won't appreciate where we've come from as much and there'll be well, more I expectation think, I, on I think that's that, that that's funny I mean I mean Russ you know, I'm kind of maybe maybe well Peter you've led me back in accidentally there into kind of like my career for what it's worth compared to football and everything but I think that's um that's one of my things I think the big thing from my Brighton point of view um and from what I, I, I do now I mean I you know the way that journalism was going you know uh, there were lots of cuts the observer made all their freelancers you know uh, redundant so I started going into more books and communications work and PR work and using my writing skills to do other things mm. but I kept up the Brighton stuff I mean um Paul Camlin who I met for the first time dare I say it, in a pub uh, after the five nil Crystal Palace job um but yeah when was that in the early the early 20 part of the 21st century and the Paul knew me and I knew him, but we'd never actually met face to face. And um, he was, you know, we, we just had many beers and, and, and we talked about various work projects as well because he was getting a publishing firm, uh, a firm you may know called Pitch, Pitch Publishing. You know, Paul mm. involved in them. They published many sports books over the last few years. So we were talking about various projects with that. And then he said, well, could you just start doing some stuff in the Albion program? You know, some of the kind of interviewing the old players, tracking down the old players and interviewing them and whatever. And that was 17, 18 years ago. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, so if you ask me about the old Albion stuff, you know, it's kind of like, I've, you know, I know all of that inside out. It's quite funny. It's like the last few years I've struggled to remember more uh, because uh, I live, uh, as, as my partner, as Jane will tell you, I live in the past quite frankly. I believe that the best bands were all, you know, music, music died in 1982. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I still reckon the best Albion season was 78, 79. I'm desperately living in the past, but I'm, I'm happy with it. I think, I think so, most yeah. people are guilty of that, though, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I look to the future, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very aware that basically kind of like most of, uh, most of what I write about and stuff mm. is kind of things that have gone by and whatever. But... It's been brilliant because, I mean, you know, having said, I never wanted to write about the Albion or anything. You know, I ended up, um, you know, I've written for quite a few papers about them now and quite a few magazines. And uh, I think every home match program for about 18 seasons, you know, you'll find my rubbish in there where I'm writing about some old match or interviewing some old <laughs> yeah. player. And the great thing, the marvellous thing I found as well is about, um, you know, I, I, I'm not dealing with, I'm, I'm not for an instant saying the likes of Lewis Duncan all the current players of today are, are dull or players who are playing now I'm not saying that at all but there seems to be something about players which once they retire and they pull their boots off and whatever they're just more willing to open up about things mm. and be a bit more honest and mm, just yeah. kind of be human beings I think particularly mm. players you know I interview a lot of players right away from pretty much the, the second world war up to you know 60s 70s 80s 90s so they were the era who pretty much retired and needed to get a job the following day, you know, which today's players don't really have to do, even Albion players. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were people who, who uh, had proper jobs uh, since. A lot of them had proper jobs beforehand. We talk about the great Albion sides of like the, 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 the late 70s. I mean, people like Brian Hortney works on a building site. Peter Ward had worked at Rolls-Royce. Jerry Fell had been a bank clerk in Newark. 
you know, these are players, you know, who it, it, it was a slightly different world then. And I think speaking to them is, you know, it, 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 it is more like speaking to, to, you know, kind of human beings. Normally. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying yeah. the players aren't, but oh my word, I've, I found it very different, difficult in the last 20 years. You know, trying it, it can be like trying to get water out of a stone. I think also the culture's different now, isn't it? So it's yeah. kind of hard, it's less going yeah. on in terms they shouldn't be going out and getting pissed, whereas during between games, whereas in the old days, it used to be a lot more, maybe. Yeah, it's more, it's yeah. very much more sized, isn't it? Because I think um, the clubs are very well aware of how social media works, mm. and while that on one point can be useful, another point can be for a scourge. Um, I think clubs like the Albion, for example, have got a pretty good strong hold yeah. on that but that does yeah, do restricts you know it restricts who says what i mean nothing happens without official channels if mm. it's done properly now and that does unfortunately it, 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 to yeah you're yeah. right russ it's 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 got to be done that way because you know it's, it's it is different times you mentioned the two words social media you know it's mm. um i mean brighton are fortunate brighton do it better than most um and that's largely down to paul camley uh, who's Brighton's um, press officer and head of media. I mean, Paul was a fan first and foremost. You know, he's been there for 20 years now. You know, so ag ag again, it's it's what I'm saying about that sense of, you know, that sense of perspective. You know, he's lived it and breathed it. It's not like he's been parachuted in, you know, as a kind of... Yeah, I mean, he was there in the war years, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah um, he was there all the way through. I mean, uh, you know, he, he knows it. He's, you know, he's, he's yeah. marvellous and... Yeah, he, we love him at Steelers over London because he's often often comes down with guests and brings people along. He's really good. I can't I'm, I can't praise that man, you know, mm. or highly. He's he's just he's just a top bloke, a lovely guy. Yeah. What you do is what you get. Um, and I think our attitude towards the media and the way that we are, I think, reflects that. Um, yeah, I think he is really is a top top fella, and I mean, he's a conduit between. Interestingly, what Peter was saying about. The, generation of fans now the Amex era we're, we're almost a decade into the Amex there's a there's a, num a number of people who are of coherent conversational age now who only know the Amex so that's yeah. a new era that's in. and it's interesting and it's also important that people are both in terms of uh, the media and in terms of people within the club um, there's people that can express what's happened before and Paul was obviously mm. perfectly placed for that he's experienced yeah. it as a fan before and after the war years and during and he's obviously had the inside track so i think people like him are really important yeah to spread the I word think, you know, I think he knows that and that's why you know he, he I, I i've got no idea why he uh, or why the club continue to use me hopefully it's because i can write all right and stuff like that and whatever and i've got a good contacts book but but you know I, I would imagine from paul's point of view it's like you know he has that I think he shares that thing with me, which is about to appreciate the present. You've got to have an understanding of the past. Hmm. And I think that's very true hmm. with, with the Albion. And, uh, and that's the way I look at football in general. Really. Um, you know, it's all very well looking around at the Amex now and thinking, oh, yeah, we've got this. But it's like, well, how did it come to this? You know, uh, you know, all the seasons kind of like, you know, that have gone beforehand. You know. Especially with all the money in the Premier League, it's easy to forget where we've come from. Yeah. And I think it's so yeah. important that the club, that, yeah, you, yeah, we don't but lose not, sight of where I'm we're not, from. I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about, you know, the Albion. I mean, I've, I've, you know, written many, many, you know, I've probably written far more articles, you know, and, and stuff, and even books about, you know, people who've got zip to do with the Albion, basically. Mm. And so being through that, I've got to know an awful lot of people like the Paul Camlins and the historians and uh, similar people who do similar things to me at other clubs. 
you know, and, and, and some clubs are really, really up on their history. You know, the Everton's of this world, Sunderland's, you know, clubs that really, really appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the wealth of history that, that's there. And there is, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I'd like to think it will always, well, it won't always be there because obviously we'll die off and push off this mortal coil at some point. But I'd like to think the next generation coming through will also want to look at what we've written and look back on the stories of what happened before 1992 which is, it just drives me mad, you know, it's, it's like, I, 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 you know, I'm not knocking the BBC necessarily, but this match of the day business at the moment during the lockdown, you know, where they get three strikers together, who talk about the Premier League, yeah. and those three strikers, you know, all cut their teeth in the football league, and it, there they are sitting there, talking as though football started in 1992, yeah. and it's like, oh, he's the all-time greatest, you know, scoring the top five, and you think, well, hang on a minute, you know, there was a guy called Dixie Dean who did that many years beforehand, or there was such and such, mm. or whatever, it's, it's almost awesome. like Beatles. there were certain people out there who just make you want to think that football started in 1992, and I have no time for people like that at no. all, no. you know, it's, it's, no, 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 no. But it's Premier League PLC, you want you to think that mainly, isn't it, and then uh... All the all the companies like who pay them to, for the football. Yeah, and that may, sort of thing. maybe, but at the same time, it is it is the duty of, of people in the media and and mm. other you know people who call themselves historians or write about the game or people in my position to remind them that actually, well, no, that's not the case. Mm. You know, fair enough. The Premier League's a good business model, well, to a point, maybe. Um, and you know, there's 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 plenty that's good about it, but you know, football was going over a hundred years before the Premier League. You yeah. know. So, you know, let's remember that. You know, let's. Absolutely. I'm interested to know how things are going to be further down the line, generational two further down the line. Are we still going to have those typically English or British sensibilities of having? Because I feel there's always a, a strong tendency for us to look to the past. Maybe it's something to do with the heritage of the World Wars and all that sort of thing. But we, yeah. we always like to look back. We've got a, a series of people in northern europe in general we're collectors aren't we we're geeks we're those type of <laughs> we've got those that, those sensibilities and i think history is also an, another major part of that in terms of what people are interested in looking back to um there is a sense of nostalgia we all look back to we've been talking about previous games on this episode yeah. now and i do think we've got that in our nature but is that going to change as a nature a couple of generations down the line i wonder it'd be interesting to know Say, for example, people from who are 21st century kids onwards, for, for example, are they going to have that same sensibility or are they only going to be thinking in terms of the hero? Well, I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, the way that I look at my own son, I mean, the way he gets his information and all his gadgets. I mean, you know, I mean, he knows more about the stories that are breaking now before I do. You know, he'll come in and say, oh, have you heard such and such? And I'll go, what? You know, how have you heard that? And it's like, you know, because they're just wired up and all his mates and they're all, you know, you can't compete with that in many ways. But I think there will always be, you know, a sense of kind of people who will want to look to the past and will be interested in history. I mean, I can't really answer that question because when I was at school, um, you know, I, I couldn't add, I, I wasn't good at physics. I, you know, I, I wasn't trying to build something to go on tomorrow's world. I loved history. I loved geography. You know, I loved, you know, um, finding out about things like World War One, World War Two. you know, in, in geography. I love human geography. You know, why is this town here? Why do the people live there? How do towns grow? I was always fascinated by that, that sense of culture and history. And I think that just, you know, my, my love of sport and music as well. 
is uh, I've written a fair bit about that. That that feeds into that. Yeah. So I think the sports are very big thing in terms of nostalgia, especially when teams have maybe not, not gone downhill a bit in recent years. People will always hark back to the good times when, even if they weren't around then, you know, when they, their team won the league, they'll look, they'll research on that because it's, you know, that's the history of their club in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cardiff's a good example, you know, where I am now, where I live now. I mean, you know, um, Cardiff can be a funny old club. I mean, now I actually live here and I know an awful lot of their supporters. I know they're not all um, mindless kind of, you know, fearsome hooligans and whatever. And they've got some, you know, some great supporters. But, I mean, they won the FA Cup in 1927. And it's still a really big thing here. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, I don't think there's anybody alive who was there anymore. There were one or two remaining people, you know, who used to appear every now and then for kind of you know, things on television, radio interviews. I think they passed on now. But, you know, it's still a major, major thing in this community down here. 1927, so, uh, the year Cardiff won the FA Cup, the year that the Cup came out of England for the, the only time ever. There's a statue of uh, Fred Keener, cap- uh, Cardiff's captain that day. Um, walking distance from where I'm sitting now talking to you. And that statue, funnily enough, it's not like a statue that was put up, you know, in a year or two after the game. That statue has only been there about five or ten years. Yeah. And that was put there by fans wanting to remember their heritage and wanting to kind of like look back and, you know, take, I think can take control of their club a little bit more as well. I mean, Cardiff were another club, you know, who had, shall we say, people of dubious intent maybe getting involved at one point. And they wanted to maybe reclaim it a little bit for, you know, for themselves and yeah, yeah. set down a kind of marker about, well, Fred Keener stands for the club as it was. And uh, we want people to remember that. What better way than the statue? And so I, th- I think there are, you know, there's a lot like that. I think there will, club, you know, clubs will always have people who won't live in the past necessarily, um, but will always want other fans to remember where they've come from. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, you mentioned geography and history. I think for me, English geography and history, the latter two of those three being, I think, interesting in terms of football fandom, because yeah. those two, obviously, in, in different ways, uh, have a significant part to play in the football fan's life. One, in terms of the travelling around and knowing your country, yeah. through football support the other one obviously history is something you may or may not be interested in but the, for those that are when it comes to football history obviously that takes you into a whole new thing um without being too philosophical about it obviously you need people like that as and you will always have people like that just as you will have mathematicians people who are into science and we need those things as well um uh, both you're, with and without right. I, mean, I mean you know my you, no you are right russ i mean my introduction to kind of like the british isles largely when i was uh when I was, you know, late 70s, early 80s, I was, um, I was a, a massive, uh, I was going to say, don't tell anyone, I was a massive train spotter. I love trains. So, you know, me and my mates, we, we'd go everywhere, kind of like, you know, quite often tying it in with football as well and whatever to see, you know, certain trains. And Sussex had the dullest trains known to mankind. So, you know, you wanted to get up north and stuff and see proper kind of class 37s pulling, you know, steel trains over the Pennines and whatever and stuff like this. And we tied this in as well with, with football. So, you know, you get to know places and meet places and stuff and find out about different parts of society through things like that. It was, it was train spotting football. I mean, my introduction really a lot to, to kind of left wing politics and things like that was uh, a lot of that was football and the mining strike. 
you know, I started, you know, I was starting to get old enough to go away during like 1984 and go away to places like Barnes, where, you know, coming from Warnham, you know, a little suburb of Horsham, you know, it's just like, it was another planet going to places like that, going out to Sunderland, you know, where the yards were just shutting down. Uh, and just seeing, seeing basically what, you know, what we weren't seeing on a day-to-day -day basis in Sussex, seeing what was being done to the rest of the country. Um, and the fact that, you know, um, you know, Barnsley's football ground was half empty because people couldn't afford to go, you know, and watch, a, you know, pay five pounds to go through the turnstile there. And like with the trains as well, the fact the freight trains stopped running and whatever, and there were less trains to spot. Why? Because the mines were shutting down, the steelworks were shutting down. You can see this with your own eyes. So I think football is a big, big part of that, that culture. And, you know, you say about the history and geography and everything like that, and it's all wrapped in, it's all together, it's all linked. Even now, I mean, less so, but still very much the case is the presence of um, socio-cultural elements within football. Whenever, very consciously and subconsciously, it's embedded, isn't it? The, the working yeah. class game, particularly the working classes in the north versus this perception of the south. There's Even today, I still feel there's a strong sense of that amongst supporters. There is a hang-up in some ways. There's... Um, there's some differences, uh, some fundamental differences. I think, I think, with the makeup of the psyche of the football fans still nowadays, and it's it's very much a microcosm and a reflection of society as a whole, isn't it? I think. I don't know, but you're interested. You know, I don't know if it will change now that the old football grounds that we remember, you know, one by one every season, another one bites the dust, and you move on. So you know, you've got another. You know, dare I say, like Falmer. You know, you look at Falmer; it's in a different place. You look at Derby, different place, whatever. Look at football grounds of the past. If you did an aerial photo of, say, most grounds, I'd say, take Ninian Park just down the road from here. You can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that there'll be a church nearby because most clubs or an awful lot of clubs were born out of churches and all the church organisations mm. or a team that was formed from that church. Mm. You pretty much guarantee that there'll be a railway yard nearby or some kind of, uh, you know, docks or whatever, you know, some source of, you know, kind of uh, support, you know, local labour who would go to that football ground. And if, if you look at most aerial photos of most clubs, you know, back in kind of like the old days, um, they're not too different. You know, they're pretty interchangeable. There'll be the same old terrace houses. There'll be industry there. There'll be a church there. Um, that kind of thing. Um, Although the Goldstone was a bit of an exception because even though it's, it's quite funny, the amount of North, you know, players I know from the North who came down and signed for Brighton. And, uh, you know, you go from terraced houses to kind of genteel hove where there's like open, you know, there's a park over the road from the football ground. Can you believe it? There's a park there. <laughs> we train in the park. You know, it's like, you know. So um, the Goldstone ground was a little bit different. The surroundings there were slightly different, but most of them were all the same. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, one quick question well, on your... That was philosophical, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that was deep and meaningful. It's we don't want any of that sort of stuff on the show. No, we don't. Do Can we edit that out? That was just... Philosophical malarkey. I know. Strange. Well, yeah. getting back on track, just quickly on the career front, before we move on to talking about your books, one, one other question I had was, during your time building up your career, what were the early challenges or the challenges in general and what did you find toughest about it and what, what, what were the peaks, I suppose, and the highlights as well? Oh, I don't know. The toughest thing, I think, like most careers, is getting in, is getting a mm -hmm. foot in the door. 
um, journalism's never been easy to get into. Uh, I think unless your 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 dad runs the Telegraph or the Times or whatever or something, and there's a bit of nepotism mm. going on, which journalism is guilty of. I mean, I came from a very very normal family. You know, um, we weren't poor, but we weren't wealthy. Christ no. Um, I knew you know no one in my family you know walked in those circles, so. I had to try and get my foot in the door and start, but that's no different to probably a lot of other people who want to kind of, you know, have a dream mm. job. So getting your foot in the door, uh, that was without doubt the toughest bit. I find after that with most things, if you work hard, um, you'll, you, you know, you'll get to kind of um, experience things, write about interesting things, go to interesting places. Um, I mean, mine's been a bit of a roller coaster career, uh, not in terms of dips. Although if you're self-employed and of course you get a you know a recession, you know that could be interesting. It's a bit of a roller coaster in quite you know because of the career choices I've made. Quite often, you know, it's been you've been working on something and somebody's coming and said, "Do you fancy doing that?" And you'll go, "Yeah, all right, that sounds fun." And I must admit, most of well, just about all of my career decisions have been based on: Am I going to enjoy it? Is it going to be entertaining and thrilling and something you can talk about in the pub rather than what's the paycheck uh and um and I, I dare say i will probably come a time if i ever ever retire where i might really regret my career choices but i've had a blast but it's it's it, it, it is weird i mean i've covered everything from kind of crew alexandria way to the 1997 oscars on the red carpet you know, to to strange goings on in Bucks and Buckinghamshire and 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 that, and that to yeah to interviewing kind of major major film stars and stuff like that. Although I must admit, my favourite interviewee is probably still Peter O'Sullivan over a beer. Um, and to anybody who doesn't remember Peter O'Sullivan, do you read him? He was uh, probably well one of my all-time Albion heroes. Don't I say? So yeah, yeah it's just. Yeah, like any career, really, it's kind of get in there and then work and you know work yeah. hard. And, and it must work. it must be amazing to end up doing a career that you wanted to do all along, kind of thing, and kind of like yeah. you know, you've always wanted to do. Yeah, I think I look back now and I think, well, you know, it's a it, it was a bit of a kind of risk because, as I said, I wasn't exactly top of the English class by a long, long way. Um, but I think uh, I think the one thing that did work in my favour was even when I got into journalism, I, w- I was you know my writing wasn't particularly snappy, it wasn't it didn't flow, and I did some moonlight shifts on BBC Radio Berkshire while I was uh, living in uh, in that part of the world, and there you know was basically told that you know you know the best way of writing is though you know is though you're, you're sitting in a pub talking to mates or you know like like we are now, write as though you're talking to somebody rather than. Mm. You know, you're writing some kind of thesis or something or whatever. And I thought, oh, all right. And they said, that's the way to write, you know, for radio. And at that point, I was thinking of going over and doing more radio work. Uh, but I took that advice and then went back to my newspaper and found that in the space of like literally days, my writing style completely changed and just became more natural, more mm. fluid. And, uh, so I stayed in journalism. I stayed in, well, not just journalism, but I stayed in writing uh, and let the radio side go. Although I still do bits and pieces of radio. Radio is great fun. Um, although I tend to go on and kind of do the more analysis thing and you know, featurey kind of work now. I wouldn't do the uh, commentating on games. I commentated on one game for a radio station called March's Sound. I covered 
Swansea City versus Wrexham at the Vetch, as it was then, the old Vetch field. And I swore on air in the middle of a goldmouth scramble. <laughs> and they never asked me back to do a second one, a second report. Uh, and uh, I'm not even going to say what I said, but I just got a bit carried away and realised actually that um, I hadn't done it. I thought I'd done my research, but um, I, I I just hadn't bargained for how hard it was going to be, you know. And um, yeah, I imagine that's pretty much must be one of the most difficult jobs ever because it's like you're literally having to say keep the conversation going the whole whole time, especially yeah. if, even more so in a way on TV when people can actually see what's going on. So you've got to talk about something else almost. In a I way. think the worst. The worst bit about this particular radio station was that they, you know, they had like Wrexham, Chester City, few you know, non-league teams, and they would rather than you being on constantly, which I would probably have been better at, they would come back to you every 15, 20 minutes. And this was in a game where nothing was happening apart from the moments where they came back to me. So whenever they were coming back to me, I was having to try and roughly say what had happened or little had happened in the previous 10, 15 minutes. And then whatever was going on in the pitch right in front of me, and I just failed miserably at combining it. It's a real art. I've got I've got nothing but respect, you know respect for the people who do the radio. Yeah, I've I've um, heard it's tough, and I mean, um, tough, I mean, to tough, do it well, not just do it. Content, oh yeah, do yeah. it to the point where you inspire people. Which the, the classics like Peter Jones as a commentator on the radio was famously one for doing. John Motson for TV uh, in his peak, you know, and various others besides. That's to do it to the point where you're mm. characterful insightful entertaining on top of the competency that's got to be brian, difficult yeah brian moore yeah brian moore's another one actually yeah the late brian moore he's um mm. he's one i didn't appreciate at the time i think now you know particularly watching all of these games in the lockdown and you know yesterday i was watching the old arsenal versus manchester united uh, footage on itv from the 1979 cup final and he's brilliant on that mm -hmm. and it can't have been easy because he had um uh, yeah, Brian Clough is his co-commentator, his analysis man. <laughs> so, I mean, sitting there commentating on something like that with Cluffy on your left or your right, you know, kind of wanting to come in and, you know, with his uh, his interesting kind of uh, um, ways of the world and whatever, can't have been that easy. Saying it how it, how it was rather than, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. should we yeah. say. And it's funny, he's actually quite measured. He was quite, yeah, he was, he, he was on a leash, I think, basically. Uh, <laughs> although I think a lot of that was possibly the fact that Clough would have had an awful lot of respect for somebody like Brian Moore because, mm -hmm. you know, Brian Moore was as good as they got, really. You know, he was, you know, at the top of his game. And I think Clough, by that point, probably appreciated that. Yeah. So, yeah very tough. Brock, anyone who thinks they can, you know, do radio or TV, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Different. Yeah, I mean, even, even us bumbling along with this podcast, we've had we've had some stumbles and things, and uh, you know, it's <laughs> even that's yeah. kind of tricky. Yeah. tricky enough, if you're live, it's out there. It's been, it's gone. You know, if if you're yeah. uh, if you're in print journalism or writing, you know, you can just delete and just go back and you know, kind of conjure something else up or come up with something else. You've got to think. You've got to think uh, quickly. I mean. Uh, you know, you know, even now I look back at the match reports, you know, that, that we all used to have to do, you know, when we, when I was doing the Saturday beat up in the northeast of England. And, you know, you write, there's a way of crafting it. You start on about paragraph four, right to the end. And then on the final whistle, you go back or in those last few minutes of the game, you go back and you write what should be the first, second, third, fourth paragraphs. And, you know, there's an art of kind of, you know, gluing it all together so it flows. 
Um, and then is that also so you can change it a bit if it something happens right at the end or whatever it completely well if it happens right at the end you're stuffed aren't you mm. a little bit and it's like you know rewrite and you've got to almost start all over again um but there are ways of crafting it and kind of you know putting it together but of course you don't know that when you when you start you know you start at the top and kind of work your way down it's only after a, a few weeks and a few kind of um mistakes and stuff and not filing your copy by the deadline that you realize actually there's an art to this and you've got to start um, at about you know 25% in right to 100% and then you go back and do not 25 at the end and then kind of hope it all hangs together and the more you do it like any job the more you do it the more it, it flows and the more it makes sense but yeah that's what you would always dread um, you know kind of those uh, uh, those last minute goals I mean the, the most famous one with me would have been uh, Jimmy Glass I covered that game um, wow, that's yeah, interesting was, game. Yeah, uh, and Carlisle United had to win to stay in the football league, and they were one nil down to Plymouth. And uh, Carlisle came back, got made it one one, and it went over into injury time at the end. And uh, I can see it now. We sat in the main stand at Brunton Park, and Jimmy Glass, the goalie, is shouting over to Nigel Pearson, who was Carlisle's caretaker manager at the time. And, and Pearson pretty much kind of, you know, just does a shrug and waves him up. And up he runs and he arrives in Plymouth's penalty area as the corner is kind of coming over. And no one marks him. No Plymouth player marks him because, um, because they haven't seen him coming. No one's been assigned to pick the goalkeeper up. So he arrives. I think Scott Doby had the first header, which was blocked. And the ball runs loose and, um, and he smashes it into the net. And uh, the place just went nuts. I mean, I mean, that was right up there with anything I've experienced at any sporting event. Yeah, I, used to, I used to work with a Carlisle fan and they, yeah, Jimmy Glass to them is like Ryan Alton's oh, store and that sort of thing to yeah. us. If not, oh, it's not even more because of his goalkeeping. But that, that was nuts because on the one hand, you're like, I don't believe this. And then, of course, you look down at what you're writing. And bearing in mind, we had computers then, but the internet would have been iffy. This is 20, 21 years ago. And um, I just remember looking down at this five six hundred word piece i'd crafted about carlisle united going out for football league and it was all rubbish it was all rubbish mm. and uh we were all in the same boat and i just remember thinking oh my you know we've, we we we, uh, we not only did we have a rewrite to do but i think we were all aware that that had become i mean bearing in mind it was the end of the football season so there were major stories breaking across sport you know and football at that time but when a goalkeeper scores in the last minute of a game to keep, well, when a goalkeeper scores anyway, let alone in the last minute of a game to keep his side in the football league, yeah. you're aware that you're probably writing the front page, you know, yeah. and at that point for the following day. So you've got to kind of get your head down and think quickly. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to, go, you've got to deal with the, the one, the ecstasy of seeing this amazing scenario unfold before your eyes and yeah. also temper yourself into. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's uh, you know um, because by that time you've been doing it for a few years, time mm. just almost takes care of itself. And mm. you know, providing you've got a very understanding sports desk, mm. who just go, all right, just just do it when you can, um, and then you just cobble something together, and then you file that, send that over, and then as soon as you've sent that over, you start working on the rewrite, and that yeah. rewrite will have hopefully some quotes in from players by then 
uh, and then you add, maybe you, you might do three or four different rewrites, which you will then send over. And yeah. then you'll probably get your last one over at about half past six. The classic thing about that that night was because it was Carlisle. An awful lot of the press boys had come up from London. And the last train back to London leaves Carlisle at, I think, 26. And I, I don't honestly know how they did it or if they did it. I was slightly fortunate. I was living in Yorkshire at the time, so I was all right. You know, it's relatively like local for me. But, uh, yeah, something like that. But that's, that's right up there with one of the most remarkable things. I think not only that I've just seen in sport, but ever seen in my life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was a remarkable day, I have to say. I, I remember being captivated by that myself. Um, listen, I am very conscious of time. We probably had a full episode's worth already. So what I'm thinking of doing here is splitting this into two, if you're able to stay with us for long enough, Spencer. Um, yeah, sure, all right then. So we're going to wrap this up as the end of episode 33. Uh, in episode 34, when we resume in a moment for our extra time, we're going to talk about your books, uh, topical debates, and do the quiz. So stay tuned, everybody. Um, just to quickly say, if you do want to contact us, uh, we come into to you in association with um, Seagulls Over London which can be found on www.seagullsoverlondon.com. There's an email address there if you wanted to contact us with any inquiries. Um, you can also contact our podcast at, on Twitter at Brighton Rock Pod, or you can email us at um, brightonrockpodcast at gmail.com. For some reason, I always hesitate when I say that. Hopefully. It, sound right. <laughs> it is definitely that or something similar. <laughs> um, anyway, we'll be back with another episode then, episode 34, coming up to you. It's very soon. Cheers for now. Stand or fall up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.